0: Being black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast.
1: How's it going, Dev?
0: Uh, it's going well, Ty. It's going well. Just got back from brunch. You know, the most important meal of Sunday. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm good. I'm full, chilling. Um,
1: Any mimosas at brunch?
0: No. So I started Whole30 um, at the beginning of January. I mean, not the beginning of January, beginning of March. Um, So I'm Whole30, no alcohol, no bread. I had like an omelet with veggies and, and some fruit. So I am no, no alcohol.
1: Okay, that's good, that's good, that's good Keep that system clean <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah And your
1: voice sound better from last week, you know
0: Thank you, yeah, I can <laughs> I can feel it It's probably getting all those toxins out of my system Because like I said, you know, last week I came after like having a lot of fun So I guess this is what it's like when you've spent like a good week or so Being really healthy um, mm-hmm. and eating clean So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah Recouping, recouping from all that Yeah Fun and work you were doing previous week
0: right <laughs> what's
1: been going on um, with you not same old same old uh, one week to go to spring break so I am really <laughs> right. trying to get past this week because I definitely need this break got a lot going on this week uh, events got to talk on a panel about because the school's having a panel on gun control So I give a little talk on that And then we have a guest speaker coming in University guest speaker coming in On actually cool stuff I might try to get her for an interview Her name is Ariel White Um, Mm. She's at MIT And she does work on race and voting trends And stuff like that Going going along the lines of like Voting and what stops people from voting Or what impacts people from not voting uh, Especially people of color um, looking yeah. at policies related, I think she's a political scientist. So when I meet her, I'm definitely going to be like, "Yo, oh, uh, come on by." <laughs> What's up interview? with that
0: interview? There <laughs> yeah. you go. Uh-huh. No, seriously, I feel like it's a conversation we need to have. As I see people. You know, it's been more than a year um, that Trump has been in office and I see people getting fatigued and just feeling um, a little disheartened, not just with, you know, Republicans, but also with Democrats. And I think it's important for us to try to have some conversations to like wrestle with our feelings right now, um, because we we need to be thinking about solutions now. We're not going to be happy with, you know, who's on the voting um you know who's on a ballot in November? Like we need to think about mm-hmm. it now because we can't be disgruntled then. So yeah, I I want to have yeah. that conversation.
1: Yeah, we will. So I'm definitely trying my hardest to make it happen. And let's not all get fooled too. For a lot of the stuff that Trump has been doing recently in the news, trying to talk to North Korea, trying to kind of support things like gun control. I think it's all in preparation for midterms coming up and he has to fall back a little bit on his more extreme mm-hmm. stances on stuff mm-hmm. to be a little more reasonable. So don't get caught off guard by that saying, Oh, you know, there's a tactic to it. You're going to be seem a little more reasonable the closer and closer it gets to, to, to midterms. So that way, you know, he can help his people in. Although the other day I just seen a, a headline where he was talking about he wants to give drug dealers the death penalty uh, or life uh, in prison. I, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, which is.
1: You know, a whole nother ball game. I'm sure we'll talk about that eventually at some point, too,
0: on well, on no, podcast. I, I feel like it's particularly relevant almost to today's topic, because when we think about who is most impacted by these uh, just very strict and and just like punitive uh, criminal justice or criminal injustice measures. Is black people and people who cannot afford proper representation, and we get the short end of the stick time and time again. So it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, it's actually relevant to today's conversation about uh, public defense and public defenders because, you know, I know a lot of people went into this election saying, like, oh, everybody. You know the same it's all the same but nah you know i'm yeah i i feel like democrats have you know been implicated or or are complicit with a lot of like negative like criminal justice reforms but like when you got like people in office that just blatantly want to see you you know just gone and put away i'm sorry you can't play with that so you know i think this topic is relevant today and yeah
1: yeah see it's definitely point? a very hot topic um You know, we will be speaking to uh, an attorney who was once a public defense attorney and now has moved on to a little bit bigger and better things, but is definitely sharing her experience with being a public defense attorney, what that's like, really dealing with people who are poor, people of color, uh, people who are just don't have the resources to have proper defense and how it really jams them up in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a really good conversation. Not only does she, you know, of course we shed light on facts, but I think it's really cool that she also gives a lot of personal experiences that she has had as being a public mm-hmm. defense attorney. And uh, some of them are really eye-opening uh, as far as like what they go through and what they experience. And there's clearly a lot of time for reform. And not only now, do you watch you watch Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder? Yeah.
0: I I watch How to Get Away with Murder. I kind of stopped watching Scandal a little bit, but I did, did watch How to Get Away with Scandal. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. That's <laughs> and so this this though, if for those of you who watch both, like I do, um, they you know they had a crossover and they, the main topic of that was taking this issue, this very issue that we're covering today, to the Supreme Court of mm-hmm. you know not having proper defense um, and the proper right to trial and how it jams up many people, especially people of color. Um, And that was the premise of those two episodes. So this is something that is very culturally relevant that is being discussed in the media and on television with mm-hmm. major shows like um, Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. So check that out, too, if you guys haven't, because it really, you it's know, really good episodes, dope. good drama, mm-hmm. but also has good social commentary along with it. Um, and so, yeah, we, we know you we, we guys will enjoy this. And um, and I do have a bone to pick with some of the listeners now. I know mm-hmm. a lot of you have been listening. And none of you have, a lot of you have not also been writing and reviewing on our iTunes. I was thinking the
0: same
1: thing. <laughs> we got so many. I see the numbers now. I look at recording. I see the states y'all are listening. I see how many people are listening. Where you are listening? And I know there's a lot of y'all listening. And the numbers of as far as our rating reviews are not the same. I was thinking the same thing. Step your game up on that. I was
0: thinking the same. I'm like, I know. Like, I people will like come up to me. Like people I know. Like, oh, you know, I listened to your. They like, well, oh, have you rated it? Have you given us feedback? And I mean, we want five stars. Like, give us those five stars. But you know, you you know, you can be honest. We know honestly we are like five star (laughs) people. (laughs)
1: <laughs> a little humble brag, humble brag. But definitely, definitely rate and review. Um, you know, we, we are doing this for you all. and We want to be a resource. So, you know, your feedback will be helpful. And then also by you just rating, reviewing will also help us get more exposure, maybe to even more resources, to more people, to bring on mm-hmm. um, even bigger names, potentially. So, so you know, let's let's say this is a community effort. So, you know, we trying to, you know, we're giving y'all as much as we can. So we ask for y'all to take, you know, 10 seconds. Just give a quick re- review, quick review rating and then that's it. You only gotta do it one time. Why? Leave time. it there. But <laughs> but we still appreciate all of you who are you know listening for sure and we see you tuning in. We see the numbers so we definitely don't take that for granted at all. Alright. All right. Sounds good. Alright so started. let's get into this topic about public defense and then uh we'll 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 talk to you guys afterwards. Peace out. Since nineteen sixty three Gideon v. Wainwright The Supreme Court ruled that everyone has the right to be represented by an attorney at trial, regardless of their ability to pay for legal services. However, with an underfunded and overburdened public defense system, many of our most vulnerable citizens are left without proper representation. Today, we take a look at the public defense system and how it impacts people of color by interviewing Ashley Adams, a staff attorney at a nonprofit organization, and former public defender in Alabama. Prior to beginning her career in law, Ashley graduated from the University of Tennessee Law School and earned a Bachelor's of Science in Sociology from Vanderbilt University. Today, we welcome Ashley.
0: So we usually start these interviews by asking um, our guests to tell us a little bit more uh, about themselves. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. And in particular, what motivated you to pursue public interest law after graduating from uh, law school?
2: Well, I am originally from Somerville, Georgia, which is a little small mountain town up in North Georgia. Um, I went on to Vanderbilt for undergrad, majored in sociology and minored in women and gender studies. Um, I went straight through to law school after graduation. I didn't take any time off. Um, Sometimes I question that decision. (laughs) Um, I went to law school at the University of Tennessee, got a fellowship in the um, Public Defender Corps, which is no longer funded, and... That provided me with a job in the um, Tuscaloosa, Alabama Public Defender's Office, and I worked there for three years. And then I went on to the Jefferson County office in Birmingham, Alabama and worked there for 18 months. And I became interested in public interest work during law school. I think a lot of law students go into law school thinking that, you know, they may go into corporate law. A lot of law schools are very focused on putting their students on a corporate law path. It's kind of rare to find a law school that um, focuses as much attention on public interest law as it does on corporate law and transactional work. Um, But um, personally, in my personal life, um, my dad has been in prison since I was 12. So it's always kind of, you know, the criminal justice system and the problems that plague Um, Poor families who are involved with the criminal justice system have always kind of been a part of my life. Um, So I it's always kind of been there. But I interned at the Knox County Public Defender's Office my first summer after my first year of law school. And from then on out, I couldn't really imagine myself doing anything else. Uh, a quick question that I, that came to mind um,
1: when you were talking about a little bit about your background, because um, I'm currently a professor in the sociology department in SUNY and I have a lot of students and I'm in the criminology concentration. I have a lot of students looking to go to law school. So can you just, I guess, give a, a little um, just talk a little bit about how your background in sociology um, worked? Or helped you, or did it help you while you were in law school? Did it offer you a different perspective? Did you see any differences between yourself and students who may not have a background in, in sociology when pursuing law school?
2: It, I, I gravitated towards sociology because I, I really just I was really interested in how people's and how people's environments um, influenced how they behaved and how they, you know, how they basically turned out. And I believe that environment is has such a huge impact on people and Mm -hmm. sociology just kind of gave me the I guess a more formal way to kind of explore that interest in people's stories Um, and being a public defender or being in public interest work, whether you're a public defender or you work for legal aid or anything like that, you have to get to know your client your client's environment. You have to, in order to properly represent them, you have to know their story. Um, so I think sociology prepared me to have a grasp of the terms and the types of environments and influences that people can have in their lives. Um, and to just, it it reiterates that those, that your environment and your story is extremely important in, um, helping people understand the person that's in front of them that at that time. Um, a lot of people in law school, like they come from different, you can major in anything and go to law school. Um, there were people in my class who had majored in engineering, um, people who had, you know, done more financial business type concentrations in undergrad. There were people, their English majors, um, psychology majors. It um, it just, depends on, you know, people major in, I guess, in college and what they're interested in and what their skill set is. But each of those majors brings different skills to the practice of law. Um, English helps with writing and being able to read a lot, (laughs) which you have to do a lot of in law school. Um, A lot of, a few of the engineering people went into like patent law, um, which is more, you know, geared towards science and creations and that type of thing um some folks go into entertainment law um but they're just very there are various areas of law that kind of suit every major and every interest
0: interesting Interesting perspective. Um, And so I I have a master's degree in sociology, and of course, Ty has a PhD in sociology. So I definitely understand uh, your desire to understand, uh, to get a better grasp on how structures and environments shape you know, people's lives and people's opportunities and and the choices that they ultimately make because these things don't happen in a vacuum as much as, you know, people like to think that they do, you know, people don't, well, most people don't just, you know, aren't just born and, you know, to say like, you know, I'm going to be a criminal. There are a lot of things that, you know, lead to the choices uh, that we make. And I think it's important to understand that. Um, so in thinking about, you know, how people go into different parts of law, patent law, entertainment law, I guess. And, you know, we need all of these different aspects of law. Um, where does public defense fit into the legal system? You know, what is a public defender and why is it
2: important um, to the legal you know ecosystem? Well, the Constitution of the United States. Um, The Sixth Amendment, particularly, states that you um, that in the United States, you have the right to an attorney Um, that has been interpreted by Supreme Court case law through Gideon versus Wainwright, that you have the right to an attorney, even if you cannot afford one. So just because you cannot afford to hire an attorney doesn't mean that you don't have the right to an attorney. So. Um, Gideon v. Wainwright is the landmark case that guarantees that even if you don't have the money to hire an attorney, you will not have your right to have an attorney diminished. Um, so what that means is that if you are accused of a crime in the United States, you are, um, but you cannot afford an attorney, the court will appoint one for you, um, especially if you are facing jail time. Um, If it's something like a fine or just a small like court cost um, where you're not looking at jail time, there um, is an exception to that. But you are guaranteed an attorney if you are looking at jail time for um, an offense. So public defenders are usually in an office, um, a state funded office. With other public defenders, um, and when a person is charged with a crime, they are the often the first people that the court goes to to appoint um, an attorney. So, in, for instance, in Alabama, Alabama does not have a unified public defender system, which means that there are only there's not a public defender office in every to cover everyone here. Um, In Tennessee, for instance, there's pretty much a public defender office in every county. In Alabama, there are only three offices that are public defender offices. So what that means is that if you are in, let's say, Mobile County, which does not have a public defender office, when you are poor and you're accused of a crime, You will be your attorney will be someone from the private bar. So it's it can be a private attorney who does criminal work on the side, someone who doesn't really engage in criminal law at all. um, Someone who's fresh out of law school and is just kind of hanging out in the courtroom and trying to get cases, you know, to make a little money. Um, So it can be pretty much any type of lawyer. Versus a public defender office, established public defender office with a chief public defender um, where they have a office culture and an office um, policy about how to handle cases and treat people. Um, So in Alabama, you don't have that in every county. Um, If you, for instance, get in trouble in Tuscaloosa County, there's a public defender office there. So if you are poor and you are accused of a crime, the court will give you an attorney from the Tuscaloosa County Public Defender Office if you are in Tuscaloosa County. So public defenders are basically a fulfillment of the right to an attorney through the United States Constitution.
1: OK, yeah. Um, you know, and there's a documentary that I, I, I watch usually show my students um, that really kind of highlights uh, the life or experiences of some public defenders called Gideon's Army. Um, I think it focuses on public defense attorneys in um, in Atlanta um, and a lot of what they go through as far as, you know, documenting what they go through, through experiences, following them in their personal lives, but also what they did in uh, court as well, you know, through their professional lives. Um, It seemed to be a really, the life of a public defender, I think, seemed to be a really challenging, daunting, and um, exhausting task in a lot of ways. Um, I know, and preparing for this interview, you know, I've seen some stats where I, it says 80 percent of people charged with felonies usually require or need to hire a public defender because they are too poor to hire a private attorney. Um, and also the U.S. Department of Justice found that about 73 to 75 of, percent um, of of public defense offices are pretty much overburden or exceed the maximum limit of cases and caseloads. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about <clears throat> some of your experience as a public defender? And if, you know, the stats that I just mentioned, how much did it play in the actual world and reality of a public defense attorney?
2: Yes. Um, regarding Gideon's army, I uh, was actually, I'm in the same, I was in the same program as Brandy and Travis, Oh, nice. Um, nice. the... Um, who are kind of the lead folks that they were focusing on. Okay. So um, that's how I got my, the public defender Corps, which is the program that sent me to Tuscaloosa. Um, part of my fellowship was training in that program that is behind Gideon's army, which is nice. Gideon's promise. So they were actually still filming when I was going through my uh, initial first few months of training with Gideon's promise okay cool um, unfortunately I did not make any of the final edits so uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Brandy um, and Travis are really really great um, but a lot of I mean everything you saw in there is is true and it happens to pretty much every public defender um, some offices are well resourced and have um established have an established presence in the communities that they're in. Some offices are very new and kind of just finding their way. And some offices are just they don't have the funding. The the state or the county that's funding them just doesn't just doesn't care. Um and doesn't see them as, you know, basically the constitutional requirement that they are. Um, but it is a very hard job. And one of the things I'm grateful for is the Gideon's promise, the program that Brandy and Travis came through. Um, it is, it was a, com- it's a community of public defenders now over like four or 500 public defenders in it now, or who have come through the program, but it's a program that allowed us to basically come together every six months and just be around each other and to, vent about all the stuff that we had been through since we had last seen each other um, and to just cry it out and vent about, you know, any sort of problems that we were facing, any sort of co-workers that we had back at the office who were not in the Gideon's Promise program <laughs> um, because that happens in some offices. And the philosophy of Gideon's Promise is different from um, a lot of the older methods of being a public defender. So sometimes there's a clash in offices between Gideon's promise people and people who are not Gideon's promise, Mm. but, um, it's, it's a hard job and anyone who is interested in becoming a public defender needs to realize needs to realize that. And just, just always remember that it's, it's, it's not easy. You know, a lot of people go in thinking, you know, I'm just going into this to just get trial experience and not realizing that public defenders are unlike any other attorney. Um, a lot of times you have private defense attorneys who try to compare their experience and it's not the same. Um, as a private criminal defense attorney, you can choose your cases. You can, you, you, you basically choose who you interact with. You can choose your cases based on whether it's a case you think you can win, based on if this is a person I like or not, is this a person I'm going to get along with versus being a public defender, you don't get to choose your cases. Um, Pretty much all the cases that come before the court come through your office, unless there's some sort of conflict. Um, For instance, a public defender's office wouldn't be able to represent two people who are charged out of the same incident. So um, unless it's a conflict like that, all most of the cases that come through a county's court system get sent to the public defender's office um because as you noted um most people cannot afford to hire a private criminal defense attorney so it is a different experience to represent a person who is poor or low income versus a person who can who has money and can afford to hire a private attorney um poverty it creates a lot of other circumstances and a lot of other problems that are not just crime related. I mean, I guess I'm trying to like, for instance, my client comes, usually comes with an addiction problem um, because they've been charged with a crime. They're looking at losing their home. They're looking at losing their job. Sometimes the state is trying to take away their kids. And if you're rich or you have money, you're often not in that type of situation. You've probably got family that can help you. You've probably got some funds built up to help you. Um, So it is a very different emotional experience to be a public defender. And I think a lot of people don't realize that going in. Mm -hmm. So you carry a lot of that with you because a lot of times you don't have the resources, you barely have the resources to represent them on the criminal case. And you surely don't have the resources to try to keep them from being homeless or try to keep them from being, getting their kids taken away. Some public defenders, some public defender offices have the resources to kind of tackle all those issues. Um, Like the uh, Bronx defenders Mm -hmm. um, in New York, they have, um, a little bit more resources and they are able to have a holistic approach to helping their clients. But most public defender offices do not have those types of resources.
0: Mm, It's it's so interesting um, to hear you say all of this um, because I don't, I don't know. I did not realize or think about the ways or, I did not think about how, you know, in a given like public defense environment or office, you know, how there might be, you know, competing conflicts or it kind of reminds me of my teacher Teach for America experience. You know, I was a part of this special program and I came into a public school with a, you know, very specific mission. But there were also other types of teachers. And sometimes that impacted the way I did my work, Um, because, you know, you're working within an environment that you can't really control. Um, um, and also just thinking about the challenges and the emotional toll that it probably takes on you when you're working with, you know, people who have very few resources to put out so many fires that are happening because of the the maybe criminal um, complaint that they are facing.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's also because they have a lot of caseloads, too, you know, usually a lot of cases and it's hard to you know, put so much time in one or or a couple of particular cases because they have so many to get through. And then even me, when I've sat and observed in a few court, you know, courtrooms myself, it, you know a lot of people a lot of when they're when they're speaking um, you know they talk things in their narrative as far as you know coming to this court date you know they can jeopardize them keeping their job you know or you know sending it spending a day or two in jail can like really have major ramifications for their lived experiences um, as far as their daily lives are child, uh, child care responsibilities, et cetera. Um, and it's like usually a lot on the line, even if for mo- most people when they can just take a day off of work, it may not be simple. It may not, it may be simpler or they can come in late, but for a lot of these people, it's, it's it, there's some pretty severe consequences when they actually just have to just come to court, you know, and take the time to do that too. I've seen that.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. Right. And one thing, one thing I was wondering when you're kind of talking about your experiences as a public defender, whether there was any particular story or case. I mean, I know you probably can't like go in depth, you know, for privacy reasons. But is there was there any experience that really stuck out to you um, while you were working as a public defender?
2: There are a lot. Um, <laughs> this is um I guess I'll give an example. This case wasn't mine in particular. It wasn't mine. And I don't even think, I don't even I can't remember who the attorney, it wasn't a public defender case, but it illustrates the, what happens with my clients versus what happens when you have money. So this was a Birmingham incident. So a, a, an heir, an heiress um, wow. to... Yeah, see, she's a, she's there. She comes from a family that has a lot of clout and a lot of Birmingham money. Um, but she got drunk one night and drove home to, um, I want to say she lived in Mountain Brook, which is the, um, very upper, upper class affluent area of Birmingham. Um, she got drunk drove and hit a construction worker like coming around a curve and in her car pinned him in between her car and a piece of equipment Mm -hmm. and he had to have his legs amputated. Mm. She got no jail time. She was able because they have money. She paid all of his medical expenses and um, in, a, in like a settlement, she paid his medical expenses for him to, you know, get his legs amputated and, you know, whatever rehabilitation there is for that. And when it came time for her to go to court on the criminal part, she was just given like probation, um, which is, you know, stay out of trouble. If you stay out of trouble, you won't have any problems. So essentially, she bought her way out of punishment. I mean, she has a felony on her record for, you know, probably some sort of assault, but my clients cannot afford to pay for somebody's legs like they I mean, there was no there's no way a client of mine would have been able to get out of prison time because they just don't have the money to pay somebody's med- the, the amount of medical expenses I can imagine that guy had. So their whole lives would have been uprooted, you know as someone would expect if you got drunk and hit somebody and they had to have their legs amputated. Um, But that case sticks with me because I'm just like, no client of mine can afford to pay for someone's medical care if they did that. But because she is able to pay for their medical care, they saw it as, you know, a form of restitution and a form of, you know, kind of, you know, a sufficient, Mm Mm-hmm um but she gets to go on and live her she still has her money you know her family's not out of they're not broke you know she'll be fine and she you know because she has money she won't ever have to really worry about finding a job you know versus a client of mine who's just entire life would be destroyed
1: yeah that's yeah. um you know when when you talk about cases with money that reminds me of that case that happened in 2013 with Ethan Couch uh, where he uh, famously was drunk driving and and killed a few pedestrians on the side of the road was doing some car assistance and he got off um, the case because his defense um, said he had he suffered from affluenza where he
0: was just thinking about so things.
1: rich that yeah. didn't have any uh, understandings of his consequences. And, um, I think he got probation or something like that, but should have definitely served some jail time. But it definitely is just like one of the, you know, ce- celebrated cases or cases that we see, but really highlights like what can happen if you have money. He's clearly guilty. It wasn't his first time, um, getting caught up drinking and driving, actually killed some people this time and was able to get off. Uh, because he was able to hire some of the best attorneys, who were able to dig up something like after ones that are really help his case, which is ridiculous in so many different ways. And then on the flip side, it's like to me that same argument can potentially be used on somebody who's extremely poor as well, right? Doesn't have anything to lose, can take this risk, but would they be able to uh, get off, you know, uh, any kind of you know case or whatever it is um, with the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? Is it only just for something that can be used and somebody with money in that particular argument?
2: Uh, right. And then, you know, that there um, there's been a lot of talk about um, putting people in jail for not being able to pay court costs and fines. I saw that a lot, wow. like in my own cases, um, which is, again, the demonstration of if you have money, you're able to pay the court costs and fines. Restitution's not, a, you know, restitution's not a problem for you. But if you're poor, you get strapped with, you know, all these court costs and all these fines and. You know, for a few offenses in Alabama, you know your license get taken away, um, and if you're poor or you live far out, which for a lot of Alabamians, that's you know they live in rural areas with you know no way to get around or no way to get to a bigger city without having to you know catch a ride or something like that. So, being poor in Alabama and being charged with a crime is it sets you even further into poverty. Um, But if you have money, you know, you're, you're pretty much fine. Um,
0: So, yeah, that's really um, interesting and kind of thinking about the affluenza thing, you know, kind of going back to all of our backgrounds in sociology. I don't see anyone making the case that all these poverty stricken, you know, kind of like Ty said, you know, they're so suffering from some type of syndrome or or condition related to their, you know, socioeconomic background that, you know, prevents them from understanding the gravity of. Of, you know, their action. So, yeah, that's complete BS. <laughs> um, so kind of uh, as we're thinking about um, class issues in, in the criminal justice system, um, were there any um, and class and race are like so intertwined, so it might be hard to um, disentangle those. But were there any patterns or trends that you noticed around like race and gender. We've talked about class, but, you know, were there any trends that stood out to you during your time as it relates to race and gender?
2: Um, I was just thinking about an incident that happened in when I was in, um, I'm, I'm going to shy away from saying the county because this particular judge and I, like, I think she's cool, but she kind of shocked me with something that she did. Um, and if she ever listens to this, she may know it's her, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. <laughs> um, Cause it, 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 you know, like we were cool, but this in particular incident kind of, it just really, it almost made me like, I cried a lot as a public defender, <laughs> but it just really, it made me, it almost made me cry because it was just so blatantly disconnected. Mm. Um, so this particular judge had just come back from maternity leave black judge. She had just come back from maternity leave. She, you know, she's a judge. She has money. She's able to do things that, you know, a lot of us regular folk ain't got the money to do. So, um, I was, I was and I had court in her, um, in her courtroom that day. And my client that was on her docket that day, um, had just had a baby. And a lot of times what ends up happening with mothers, especially new mothers and poor mothers, is that they don't have childcare. They're not able to secure childcare. Some judges are understanding of that and allow you to bring your baby into the courtroom um, if you are unable to find childcare. But as soon as it starts crying, you kind have, of have to step out. Understandably so. But they're not going to prevent you from coming in the courtroom Um, and there was really maybe only one or two judges that were like that in this particular circuit that would actually allow you in the courtroom. A lot of judges will not, um, from my experience, um, they would make you sit outside until it was your time to be called up. Um, if you brought a baby with you, um, it is also assumed that if you brought your baby with you, um, which also infuriated me a lot, a lot of judges assume if you brought your baby with you, you're trying to get out of punishment and would often threaten to you know especially so for instance if it's someone who's hasn't paid their court costs and fines and they're looking at it you know the judge is, is thinking about putting them in jail and they show up to court with the baby you often have the scenario of oh you brought your baby because you're trying you, you think it's going to make me not send you to jail well what i'll do is i'll have defects the department of children's services come and get your kid and well i'm still going to send you to jail um Wow. But in this particular courtroom, it was time for my client to um, come in. And I had just learned that she had her baby with her. And I told the judge, um, I said, you know, my client has her, you know, just to kind of give you a heads up, my client has her baby with her. And this judge who just came off maternity leave was like, she's going to have she can't come in my courtroom with that baby. Wow. And I just stood there because it was a court packed courtroom. It's a black, you know, black judge mother, and my client's a black mother. Mm-hmm. And she's standing out in the hallway with a newborn. Like that baby was, it was a fresh baby. Is what, what I told her. I like, was like, that baby was born this week. Like that's how new that baby was. And she was like, she can't come in here. Like she's going to have to find someone, get someone from your office to come sit with her or something, but she's not going to be able to bring that baby up here. And I think she saw the look on my mm-hmm. face like, are you really going to do this right now? Like, we all know you just came back from maternity leave. Mm-hmm. We all know that you can afford to get your kids childcare, and you're going to, you know make this woman go find somebody that she, she's here, but you know, she's here. Like, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even come. They'd be like, I couldn't find nobody to, wa- nobody to watch my baby. So I'm not going to come, but she's here. Um, and that, I think she saw the look on my face and was, it changed her mind. Like she, it took about another hour, but she eventually let her in. Um, but like I said, I think the look on my face, I couldn't hide it. I was like, wow. Like, how dare you? <laughs> um Uh, (laughs) yeah
0: Such a lack of understanding. And it it just reminds me of like so many cases where, you know, I've seen high profile cases where, you know, mothers, you know, they wanted to go on a job interview or they wanted to, you know, do all of these things, but they could not afford child care. And how it kind of had it actually for one mother, it actually, you know, ended up with her being, you know, entered into the criminal justice system because, you know, she was seen as negligent for like, you know, having her child. Sit at a different table while she was like having an interview at another table in, in the mall or something like that. But it's just such a lack of insight into the tribulations that people from certain backgrounds have and how race and class, you know, come together or intersect or how gender and class intersect to create unique circumstances for, you know, various individuals who are, you know, mm-hmm. going through the And to the me, system. even that
1: story right there really just highlights some things that have to do with intersectionality. I mean, as far as demographics, they were very similar. I mean, Black women, right? Uh, but the class differences where the judge couldn't connect right, with a uh, right. particular defendant. I think that's sometimes the things we have to address because even when we talk about, and we'll talk about this in a bit, you know, people talk about diversity, increasing diversity, and a lot of times it's just like, oh, let's just put more people of color in certain positions, but if you don't have that overall well-balanced understanding, then you're still going to see these kind of uh, situations happen to be very much prevalent, right? If you're not understanding your positions, but also trying to just have empathy. Okay, where is this defendant coming from? From, like you said, at least she's here. She can't afford childcare. I'm just a new mother as well. I know what it's like. Then maybe I should have a better understanding and hear the case. But again, there were similarities as far as Black f- and being a woman. But yet that class difference played a large role as far as that disconnect um, and, right. and things that we don't kind of highlight and discuss. Um, but I do want to move forward, too, because I think uh, we have to talk about this topic, you know, that we have you on here, too, I think is very important because uh, you know a lot of times... When I talk to friends and family and even students about um, the criminal justice system, you know a lot of their reference point comes from TV, Law and Order, etc., and how the the tr- the court and the trials play out. Um, but a little known statistic: with people don't understand that most cases almost all cases are settled through plea bargaining, right? Um, I think 97% of federal cases are, and 94, 94% of state cases are settled through plea bargains where many of these cases don't, you know, see the full extent of a trial, etc. And of course, we know that many poor people are a part of the system and have to use public defense. Um, and I think even within the plea bargaining process, I think it's also missed how, I believe, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe prosecutors have a lot of the power because they get to set the law, not the laws, to set the, um, the sentencing or not the sentence or the charges against the individuals as well and kind of use that to scare people into accepting this plea so that they can get the guilty verdict. And that gets a check mark on their record. And, you know, and they get a lot more resources typically than the public defense teams do. Um, so I think it's just like a lot there and a lot to be discussed and unpacked when we talk about plea bargaining. So I'd like to hear your insight about that and maybe you can shed some light for our listeners on plea bargaining process.
2: Uh, yes, all of the all of that's true and correct. Um, it's like there were sometimes times in, in, especially like we have these big docket calls, these big docket days where my hand would just be about to fall off from just filling out plea paperwork. Mm. And that would frustrate, it was frustrating because people plead guilty for different reasons. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not just because some of them are guilty. Some of them are guilty of what they've been accused of. But a lot of times people plead guilty because it costs to fight and not just, you know, direct money. It You know, having to go back, you know, sometimes cases drag on for so long. I have case. I still get notifications from cases that were first assigned to me in 2011 when I started as a public defender. Like I got a notification on one guy the other day. We did his plea. It was a plea into a drug program that would get his cases dismissed. Mm -hmm. This is six years, six and a half years later. And he is still not done with the program because he's poor mm-hmm. and the program costs like three, $4,000, but he pled to it because he didn't want the felonies on his record. Yeah. But now he's in this position where the cases are going to show as pending on his record until he pays the cost of the program. Mm-hmm. And it will be hard for him to get a job mm-hmm. because a lot of job, you know, a lot of places want cases resolved before they hire you. Um, so it's just frustrating, but um, it, like I said, it costs to fight, you know, having to come back and forth to court for months or even years. People, you know, a lot of people don't have the types of jobs that are that forgiving. Um, a lot of people don't have the, you know, the transportation to get back and forth to court, um, especially here in Alabama. You know, the bus system, even in the bigger cities, the bus system is garbage um, and not everybody's willing to give you a ride around, you know, to court or anything like that. Um, So it, a lot of, you know, people are forced a lot of times by circumstances to, to plead guilty um, to often to things that they didn't do or things that the state can't prove.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And it's like, if you, sometimes you're like, man, if they just hold on and we can get to trial, I think the case, you know, the state's case would fall apart. But, you know, it would take it takes like a year and a half to two years to get to trial sometimes. Mm -hmm. And people just don't have that the the resources to wait that long. Um, So a lot of times they end up going into these programs, you know, like the program I was referencing before that gives them the hope that the cases will someday be dismissed if they complete this program. But then the program itself is hard, unnecessarily hard. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd have people who would plead to, like for instance, you can go through this program and get your case dismissed, or you can go ahead and plead to some prison time. I would have folks who'd be like, I'm just gonna go ahead and plead to the you know prison time because I don't have the money to get drug tested every week, or I don't have the type of job where I can just leave and go get a random drug screen or anything like that. Um, and a lot of times the prosecutors charge they overcharge. So if you do go to trial, you're going to trial on that that high charge. And there's, you know, trial is so unpredictable. It is likely that you could be found guilty of that higher charge. Mm. You know, um, sometimes prosecutors, they do that because they know their juries. They know that they can bank on a motion during the trial to get people to sway people to convict people of the most serious crime. Um, You know, even if it's like I don't have the evidence to prove that, but I can get, you know, I can say some things and see if the jury will go there with me to convict this guy. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's there are a lot of, you know, there's, you know, the plea bargaining process is that statistic is not driven by the fact that, oh, all these people are guilty, Um, It's just there are a lot of scare tactics built into the process that just scare people away from fighting. It's just easier sometimes to just kind of lay down and do these costly programs or to plead outright guilty.
1: Now, as a defense attorney, now, is this process, the plea bargaining process, is it more informal or formal? And what. Do you have any power in the process? So if the prosecutor comes and says, you know, I want to charge, you know, first degree or whatever it is. And you're like, no, I I want to put something else on the table. Do you have the power to change it or would you have to accept what the prosecutor gives you?
2: So basically what happens in Alabama and a lot of other places is a person gets arrested for a crime. The the police book you into the jail on certain offenses. Okay. Um, You have a court date an arraignment court date where you're told, hey, this is why you've been arrested. Um, Here's your bond. Um, A lot of my clients were unable to bond out. So they would plead out later on to get out. That was, you know, to get out of prison. I mean, to get out of jail. Yeah. Because a lot of time the plea offer would be like, you know, I'm just going to, you know, plead guilty to it and we'll just put him on probation. That gets you out of jail because you can't, you don't have the money to bond out um, but it also straps you with a felony and it puts you on paper. <laughs> but um, you know, like I said, a lot of people are like, I I risk losing my house if I stay here longer. I risk, you know, my kids being taken away, um, all sorts of stuff. But um I totally forgot what the question was. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, it was just—I was just asking.
1: Yeah, I was just asking about the power you had as a defense attorney when it comes to changing oh, okay. or, or <laughs> changing certain stipulations or whatever it is between the agreement.
2: So after the arrest process, then it gets uh, most cases get forwarded to a grand jury. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, you know, a grand jury will indict a ham mm-hmm. sandwich. Um, so pretty much any time someone. Is arrested, that case is going to get forwarded to a grand jury and it's going to be indicted. The and grand jury is going to issue an indictment. Um, so then we get the indictment, which is usually listed with the highest charges. Um, for instance, let me give you a, a, a scenario here that often happened when I was a public defender. Say you're a poor mom struggling to feed your kids, you go into the Piggly Wiggly or the Kroger or whatever your local grocery store is. You stick a pack of meat in your purse. You're getting ready to walk out with it without paying for it. One of the cashiers or a store manager tries to stop you at the door. You run out and in the process, bump him. That always got charged as a robbery. Mm. It is a basic petty theft. Like it is a petty theft, like shoplifting. But because there was quote unquote, you know, quote force, Use like he got bumped or knocked down on the way while she was running out. He gets charged as a robbery. Wow. Um, so if your client is trying to go to trial, your client is going to go to trial on a robbery charge. And based on the elements of the offense, it is conceivable that a jury could find them guilty of robbery. But that is not I mean, to any decent human being, that is not a robbery. That is a that's not she went in the store, held everybody up with a gun for a pack of meat. You know, like yeah. it's that's not what we think of when we think of a robbery, but it meets the elements of robbery. Um, and going into a trial, I would have to just get the. I would have to try hard to get the jury to just feel some empathy for my client, you know, like, yeah, this could, you know, you could charge this as a, ro- as a robbery, but that's not what robbery was meant for. You know, it's not, it's not meant for the poor lady that's, you know, trying to steal meat for her kids. Yeah. Um, but I may go to the prosecutor cause I know that that risk is there that she could go to trial and get charged and get convicted of robbery, which is, you know, a major, it's a violent felony and it, it has, implications that, you know, some other felonies do not. But um, I go to the prosecutor on like a a court date, a docket day, and I go in prepared with my client's story, you know, like going in and not knowing anything about your client is not going to help you. I've probably talked to the prosecutor beforehand, like sent an email or picked up the phone and called and said, Hey, can we talk about this case before court comes? you know, to try to see if there's something that we can do. So this lady is not going to trial, you know, looking at a robbery. Um, so depending on who the prosecutor is and, you know, that's going to vary. Um, if it's a prosecutor with a heart, they'll work with me, you know, like they'll, feel something about the fact that she's poor or, you know, she's living out of her car or she's got like eight kids. And this is not the walking in the bank with the mask type of, you know, it's not that, Yeah. Um, you have some other prosecutors who do not care. Like just that, that they don't have, no, they don't have any heartstrings, nothing tugs. It's, you know, it just doesn't, You know, so I may be I may be able to talk some prosecutors down to maybe like a a misdemeanor theft or something like that, because, you know, nine times out of ten, the the meat is probably like ten dollars or something like that. Yeah. Um, It's not anything. But robbery is not based on the amount it's based on. um, It's based on the level of force used. So, um and then some prosecutors would be like, well, we'll drop it down to a felony theft, you know, like a, a felony of something or a lower robbery or something like that. And it's just like, "Wow, how can we avoid strapping this lady with any sort of felony? You know, um, so a good prosecutor would, you know, work with me in assuring that this lady does not get strapped with a felony for some cashier trying to be a superhero, you know, and getting bumped in the process.
0: Yeah, that's really unfortunate. It seems like, you know, sometimes um, it's about the win and not about justice um, in in those cases, which is unfortunate. And one thing so, you know, kind of trying to move the interview forward to like change and and, and advice and uh, things of that nature, how do we bring the justice back into the justice system? Like based on your experiences, you know, as a public defender, someone who spent, you know, their career um, over the last, what, six, seven years um, in public interest law, what do we need to do to improve the system? especially to make it a system that is not justice based on race or justice based on, you know, your socioeconomic status. Like, how how do we bring the justice back into the justice system?
2: My first piece of, I guess, advice would be, um, especially since, um, as you stated earlier, as the think Terrell stated earlier, prosecutors have the most power. the first step is real is prosecutors recognizing that your job is justice. It is not a win. Um, also, part of that is recognizing that my client, you represent the community. You are the district attorney for that particular community. My client is also a part of that community even though they have been simply accused of something. They are part of your community as well. You represent them as well. In addition to the person who is doing the accusing. I think the disconnect comes from prosecutors viewing my client as an other, as someone who is outside of the the community, who is outside of humanity a lot of times to them, and that the victim is their client, which is not the case. The community is who you represent, and my client is a part of that community as well. Your job is to find a balance between the person who is the accuser and the accused. And I think as soon as people realize that, especially prosecutors, things will change. Um, Also, we are all, a lot of us have escaped jail or prison or being accused of a crime on luck. So many of us think that what is happening could not happen to us. Oh, I could never do that. I would never do that. I would never, you know, shoot somebody. I'd never rob somebody. I'd never, you know, slap somebody. I'd never do this. I would never do that. And that, again, is another way of othering people and not recognizing that you are a part of that community and could be that person that you think couldn't be you. So, you know, you, you know, it is, you never know what type of situation you may end up in. You just never know. And you would want someone to hear you out if you should ever end up in that situation. I think that's helpful in creating a much more, I guess, a softer criminal criminal justice system is recognizing that at any point we all could be that person that we think we would never be. I think
1: um, I think that leads me to my next uh, question which is kind of a two-part but not really there to combine. you know what and especially because I think some of our listeners um, may not have a lot of money, what are some of the common mistakes people make when they have run-ins with the law? And what kind of advice do you think you can also give to these people for when they are seeking the help of a public defender defender or or in the system, you know? So what are some mistakes that you see that they do or may have, and what would be some advice that you would give them in that process if they do have to go to court and the like?
2: First mistake that everybody makes is they talk. And I just want people to stop talking. (laughs) I just (laughs) want people to shut up and stop talking. The police don't want to help you. They don't want to help you. Just, just don't talk. Mm. Don't talk. They want to explain stuff. They want to all, so many of my cases would just, and you know, like even on TV, like you just watch an episode of Dateline. You watch the first 48. A lot of those shows are hard for me to watch now because it just, one of how the police treat people in those interrogation rooms and when they arrest them and stuff is just, I can't, I can't look at it. Um, but also it just makes me want to leap through the TV because people just talk and they think that they're just gonna talk their way out of stuff. And it's like, no, that when the police tell you that anything you say can and will be used against you, they are not lying to you. That's, that's, that's something they ain't lying about. Um, (laughs) they are not lying to you. They, they will use it any little thing. So don't talk, Hi, you know, ask for an attorney. Don't talk, ask for an attorney. Um, so that would be, that's one of the common mistakes people make. It's okay. just, is talking. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um,
0: I was just telling I was just telling John I was like when we have children in the future we will instruct them if anything ever happens keep your mouth closed he thought I was playing but I'm happy you said that I'm definitely gonna play (laughs) that no like
2: just no just don't talk like just do (laughs) there is no nothing good comes from talking like it, it, it nothing good comes from it you think that little that little thing you said if it's you know if it's not I need an attorney it's going to be used. It's going to be used. Um, As far as, you know, if you're looking for, if you get in trouble or someone in your family gets in trouble or friend gets in trouble and you're, um, you need a public defender, um, when you go to court, let the court know that you don't have the money to hire an attorney. And they are supposed to, um, a lot of places, give you an affidavit to fill out. Um. Unfortunately, in some states, I want to say in Georgia, they, the application has a fee. It's like $50, which is just gross. In Alabama, there's no fee. Um, If you come to court, first appearance in court, and you say, hey, I can't afford to hire an attorney, they're supposed to hand you a form. You fill it out with your income and stuff on it. Be honest um, and fill it out. And if your income is below a certain level, Um, then they, you are, you should be appointed an attorney. Um, In interacting with your public defender, public defenders are attorneys. They, you know, I had a lot of clients who thought I was, I had one client was like, oh, I just thought you were a social worker that stood in court with me. I didn't know you had like a law degree and a license and stuff. Public defenders are attorneys. They receive the same amount of training. A lot of times they may have more experience than a private criminal defense attorney because they're in court a lot more than a private criminal defense attorney. They sometimes are assigned to courtrooms. So they may have a, you know, a, they may have some sort of a relationship with the judge and being able to predict what, how the judge may, you know, decide on something. They also may have a relationship with the prosecutor that's also assigned to that court. So, Don't think because you have a public defender that your life is over a lot of time. That's what people think is like, Oh, i got, I got a public defender. They ain't good. They don't care. There are public defenders who are trash. I'm I'm not going to (laughs) lie. There are also private criminal defense attorneys who are trash and don't care about you. Um, but just remember to give your public defender a chance and, you know, be honest with your attorney, never lie to your attorney, um, your attorney cannot help you if you lie to them. Um, tell them everything. There, There's a confidentiality in the ethics rules, so they are not supposed to say, you know, they're not supposed to tell what you tell them, you know. So be honest with them and recognize that they are attorneys because some people get very offended by that. <laughs>
0: So are so are there resources for people? So, for instance, you know, you can get appointed an an attorney through the court. Are there any other resources outside of a public defender's office that people should know about in terms of seeking legal advice or legal counsel?
2: Um, If you are low income or poor and you need like civil help, like, for instance, you're about to be evicted or you need help filing a lawsuit. Um, legal aid and legal services are can be found in a lot of places. And they're they're public defenders, but usually for they're usually out of like nonprofit organizations. But they basically are like public defenders on the civil side. So versus where a public defender is a criminal defense attorney, a legal aid or legal services attorney is mostly geared toward family court, um, child support, evictions, those types of things. So, if you're if you need that type of help, that is a great place to look. Um, there are, if you have a family member or even yourself um, are incarcerated or something like that, there are organizations um, that help with, you know, excessive sentencing um, or you know, help getting a parole hearing and things like that. In Georgia, you have the Southern Center for Human Rights, which does a lot of that parole work. Um, In Alabama, you have the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, In some areas, you have an innocence clinic. Um, And those are usually geared towards like more serious, lengthy prison sentences and more serious convictions. So, um yeah
1: awesome um so the last question i have for you is i have a lot of students who are interested in pursuing law school and in particular being defense attorneys and starting out as public defense what advice would you give them what would they need to know when they're looking to go into this field what kind of skill sets do you think are important for them to have and just the overall knowledge and experience of law school as well what would they need to know
2: have a heart um (laughs) just you know so much i think so many of our problems are stem from the fact that people just don't care about other people and i'm not saying you have to hug all you know you got to cry about everybody but <laughs> understand that everybody has a story even that person that just does has done the most awful awful thing you can think of even they have a story and they grew up in a certain way or grew up in a certain environment and you know just because you turned out you know a certain way doesn't mean that someone who grew up in a similar situation is going to turn out like you we all have different coping skills we all have just different things that happen to us and the sooner we understand that and recognize that I think the better off the world will be so that's That's my biggest thing is just just have a heart and um, set boundaries for self-care. I'm really big on self-care and law school and the legal field are extremely stressful areas even if you don't do criminal defense or public interest. Um, Lawyers are rank at the top as far as suicides and mental health issues. Um, one thing that I have been very adamant about throughout my career is setting boundaries. Um, I recognize that I cannot save everyone. I recognize that for a lot of my cases, you know, sitting up at 10, 11 o'clock at night, worrying about it or trying to work on something, um, is not always healthy, um, There are some exceptions I make, especially in my current job, you know, especially if we have like an execution or something like that. Um, But that's rare, you know, so take care of yourself. Like, you know, you can't take care of other people if you don't take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and your clients deserve a healthy attorney.
0: Well, well said. Well said. Thank you
2: so
1: much. I learned a lot. I learned a lot for sure.
0: I did, too, and it was just really interesting to hear your perspective, you know, how you were, like, the, the real life Annalise Keating, you know, fighting oh, in you public... Well, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Well, you know, not not all the other stuff, but when she finally, you know, started working in the public defender's office, and she saw that, you know, there are a lot of injustices that are going on, so yeah, not the other she stuff. She is zealous. I will stuff. say that.
2: She is zealous. Like, if you want Zealous, as yeah. As yeah. zealous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh we definitely appreciate yes. you appreciate the work yes. that you do and appreciate you taking you know your time to talk to us and you know maybe provide our listeners with some insight into the process and you know maybe where they can fit into um yes. change changing the yeah. system
2: so thank you thank y'all you for having me of course of course
0: So that was that was a really good interview. It was a uh, it was actually yeah, the first time I've actually heard um the perspective of of a public defender. I mean, I feel like my first Insight into the, the life of like public defenders or the challenges they may face, you know, as of recent, like I said, is how to get away with murder. And um, I think Ashley is probably a much better example of what we should be striving for um, when it comes to criminal defense um, or criminal justice um, and like public defense
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, I think this perspective, um, this field of work is really not highlighted enough. I think we overlook it. And I think largely because most of, most of the popular television shows, media portrayals of the criminal justice system just drastically overlook the work and experiences of a public defense attorney. And the reality is they are the ones on the grounds working all these cases, 80% of the time, Mm -hmm. right? 80% of the cases are with public defense attorneys. But yet, you know, 100% of the things we watch on TV have to do with, you know, high, you know, public public offenders or public defenders, you know, private attorneys, Mm -hmm. et cetera, corporate law. And none of it really highlights this. And I think even for TV purposes, there's enough... Stories and nuance here to be compelling to a, a massive audience, so it's, and, and shed light on what actually goes on. Because I think we're living in a time where media does drive a lot of people's thought and and movement towards certain things. But she definitely highlighted that today.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think what really struck me about this interview, or and it is probably what. Actually, it's what motivated me to go into sociology because I was interested in stories. I was interested in context. I was interested in understanding like how any given person gets to a certain moment, how their environment and structures in society like shape them. And what I appreciated was how she brought that perspective into her work. But I also appreciated hearing her story. Like I said, Ashley and I went to undergrad together. Um, we are actually about to have our 10 year reunion. So we graduated like 10 years ago. So I've known her for okay. more than 14 years. And I didn't even know her personal story and how it informed mm-hmm. her work. And so i think it's it's interesting how you know our backgrounds it can push us in in really positive directions you know it can lead to like really great decisions and they can lead to decisions that aren't that smart but it doesn't mean that we we don't deserve you know, a second chance or a, a criminal defense. Um, and I, I that was just what was so compelling about me. And I just really appreciated her opening up not just her professional life, but sharing her personal story as well. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And I think I, I like the fact that she was able to convey a lot of her experiences, through storytelling of what happened. I think it really helps illustrate what is going on what she has experienced, and we can really unpack a lot of the issues that we're seeing within the system. In particular, you know, I think one of the major themes that she did discuss, and I think is a major issue when it comes to our criminal justice system, is that it heavily favors people who have money and it completely disregards or is disconnected and really throws away the experiences and opportunities for people who don't have money. Um, And the fact that 80 percent of our population uses public defense means that 80 percent of the people involved in the criminal justice system don't have the money to afford a proper attorney. And with that, like you said in the interview, is that it's hard to separate race from that. Uh, One of the statistics that I've seen from the Bureau of Justice Statistics said about 69 percent of white males um, use the public defense system, 73% of Hispanics and the 77% of African-American, right? So, you know, we can see that being a person of color increases the odds, more likely you're going to be the ones needing public defense. And this can also explain a lot of the racial disparities we see in the system linked to class and race and then to the resources that they use. And what I found also problematic, not from her experience, but what she said is that, you know, a lot of the defense programs or centers are drastically underfunded Mm -hmm. and don't have enough resources Mm -hmm. compared to prosecutors. And so when you, with anything in society, you know what's important to them by what they put their money towards. Mm -hmm. And if you're just putting money towards and resources towards prosecution, that means you're putting money and resources to just locking people up. Mm -hmm. That's what we are saying we uh, want in this society, and if we actually care about the system, innocent until proving gui- guilty, and everybody having a chance at trial, then we should put just as mu- as much or even more resources towards proper defense. If that's something we say we value in a society, but clearly the way we spend our money does not illustrate that at one bit.
0: I was gonna say that's that's kind of what stuck out to me too. How she talked about that there are like such disparities, you know, depending on like the city or the county, you know, where there might be like a well resourced you know, public defense office. And then there might be some, you know, hodgepodge, you know, I, you know, I'm, you know, anyone, you know, it's kind of like grabbing up cases because there's nothing um, well organized. And so for me, you know, that kind of pointed to, like you said, some, I'm sure some locations, some cities, some counties see it as just like a, a check mark. Oh, We're we're constitutionally, you know, bound by this law or we're supposed to do this. But, you know, we can do it in this, you know, in namesake. Yes, we provided you with attorney doesn't have to be good. We don't have to give them the resources they need to actually help you. But we can say we did this so that, you know, we don't lose on appeal. And Mm -hmm. honestly, that might just be what it is for for some places. It's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it is politically driven, too, because of a lot of what we vote for in this country and a lot of what politicians use in their rhetoric is they want to make sure they are not being soft on crime or soft on criminals. And to way to illustrate that is how many people you're locking up when you look at those numbers. And so it's just a trickle down effect. This is what we vote for. OK, we have this fear of crime. We vote for people to uh, politicians to stop crime and they illustrate that by showing the percentages of how many people are locking up. Well, of course, they're going to give more resources and money to prosecutors because that's what prosecutors do is that they lock people up. And I think we begin to change the narrative of what we want politicians to do and say, OK, we just don't want you locking up any and everyone. It has to serve a purpose. It has to make sense. And we also have to expect to give more resources to people that need it. Then I think we'll start to see policy changes and people moving in that direction. But I think it has to start from the ground up But we have to begin realize what's going on and be awakened to it, and then also push those in public office to make the changes we want to help, especially if you're in or no family or a person of color, just somebody who doesn't have a lot of money. You know, the more resources poured into public defense, because like she said, what we take for granted is that this can be any of us involved Mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. And I think we live in a society where we just don't care about it until it happens to us. Mm -hmm. And if you know you don't have thousands and thousands (laughs) of dollars stacked away for legal fees, then you should be very alarmed and concerned about what the system is doing. Because if by any situation you find yourself in there and you will need a public defense attorney, I'm sure that you will want the best kind of representation that money can buy. right? Precisely. It doesn't happen to us so we don't care about it. And I think that's sad.
0: Yeah, I think we have to move beyond the mentality that yeah it can't happen to us. And that I think she mentioned a word that um, she talked about, like othering and how like sometimes, you know, like a district attorney might think of uh, a defendant as someone who is outside of the community. And what mm-hmm. was she then said something really powerful. She said sometimes they think they are outside of humanity. And I think that that is also something that the public has to grapple with because we do see people who have run-ins with the law as sometimes the other, they get what they deserve. And for me, it's not even about thinking, and cause I don't want anybody to get it twisted. If somebody did something, you know, really bad, yes, they should have to, there should be some justice around that, whether that is jail, whether that is, um, you know, paying fines, mm-hmm. but, There should also be due process for everyone. Everyone should have the same opportunity to defend themselves. And I think that's what I'm interested in, not necessarily interested in like, you know, everyone, you know, who has committed a crime, you know, getting getting off just for the sake of getting off. No, if you you know, if you did the crime, there should be some type of punishment for it, you know, maybe that's not prison, you know, depending on what the offense is, but everyone, um, everyone deserves a defense Mm -hmm. and we -hmm. have to think, we have to stop thinking about them as outside of humanity and as people who, you know, did something. And so like, you know, just put them in jail. No, there should be a process.
1: Yeah, there should be. And I think we just have this issue. I think a part of what's in the back of people's minds, if we begin to give stronger representation for the bad guys, quote unquote, then more bad guys will get off. And that's just not the case. You know, like she said way earlier in the interview, guilty people are usually going to go to jail. It's just, it's just, or, or get convicted or whatever it is. It's rare that it's not because you have better representation at, you're going to completely be free from a crime. If the evidence is there, it's there. But like you just said, it's just about giving people a fair shot. You know, It's not the fact that murderers aren't going to start getting off scot-free or people who commit this heinous crime are going to get off scot-free. No, that's not what it's about. It's just about majority of the people who don't commit these crimes. Those crimes are committed very rarely anyway. Um, and most of the crimes that are committed are the ones that she illustrated, people shoplifting for whatever reasons or doing silly things. Um, and I feel like, yes, you should have a fair shot because a lot of it isn't worth destroying the rest of your livelihood because of this felony on your record. And even how the prosecutors play the system, like I'll give you this, you know, instead of jail, we'll give you probation, but you still get this felony tacked on, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, now I'm free. I'm not in jail. Now I'm free to be in society. But now when I go for jobs, I still have to say I have a felony and I can't get these jobs, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. so now I'm probably more likely to commit crimes because I can't get a job because you put this felony on me. But yeah, I got to skate away from jail time. So it's like the ramifications, we don't think about what we're doing to people when they have to get these guilty pleas and in order for a plea bargain to work, that means somebody's pleading guilty. And so if ninety seven percent of cases are settled through plea bargain, that means ninety seven percent of people are pleading guilty to something. Right? It's kinda of crazy when you think about it. And I don't believe that ninety seven percent of people are guilty of every case that goes through the court. Mm-hmm. You know, I think
0: And I think that's what it pointed out to me or how she mentioned that, you know, sometimes it is just more convenient to accept that guilty plea than it is to go through like a long drawn out process that you can't really afford. You can't, you know, take off work for these days. And it's just kind of like that's not justice pleading guilty just to move on with your life, even if. You might not be guilty or the the charges don't necessarily fit the offense. And that's what kind of pointed out to me. Robbery, you know, for shoplifting is kind of like, you know, we don't have to be so overzealous, especially over petty stuff like stop it.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. I agree. But overall, you know, I, was, I I enjoyed it. I was impressed. I appreciate what Ashley does. For her community, for our community, mm-hmm. um, and just being a, a representative of people who need it the most and standing up for it, even when it is a challenging and difficult job. Overall.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you for your work, Ashley, and to all public Thank defenders. Gideon.
1: Shout you know, out to all the public defenders.
0: Yes. Gideon's mm-hmm. Army. Keep keep representing us because, you know, you you are truly representing us and to people in legal aid that represent people on the civil side. Um, yeah. Thank you for the work that you do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and if there's any prosecutors out there listening that want to come and chat with us, too, and give us your perspective, oh
0: please let's do, do that.
1: Hit us up. Yeah. Let's see. Let's hear the other side. What what really goes on there? What challenges? What is it true? You know, I think that'll really help us out um, to see both sides and then, you know, get a better understanding of the entire process in the court, too.
0: I agree. And if one thing I can say about all of our interviews is that we are fair and balanced, like seriously. So don't don't be afraid. Come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We want to hear from you. There's probably some things we're missing, I'm sure. And we don't want to just sit here and, you know, portray the prosecutors as bad guys or bad people. Um, and I know I know you guys do good work, too. So we want to hear from that and see, you know, what your experience is like and what are some things we can learn from your perspective and understandings, too.
0: Agreed. Right. All righty.
1: <laughs> all right. Other than that, we appreciate you all listening. Continue to subscribe, 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 rate, and review. Please interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is. Email at bhdpodcast@gmail.com at, at gmail.com. Social media handles at podcast. Um, just hit us up. Give us ideas. Give us questions. Whatever it is, give us feedback. Or just continue to listen and share us with friends and families. Or even your enemies, too. We'll take that. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But other than that, have a good one. And until next time, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.
0: If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums.
1: Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at PhD Podcast, And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressors worst fear.